Hi, you're listening to another sermon from Deep Creek Anglican Church. Well, as we set up the stage with some chairs, I would like to uh, invite and introduce to you our panel guests today. So, um, Reverend Dr. Jill Firth um, was neither of those things when we first met. In fact, we were ordained at the same time, and uh, she has gone from strength to strength, and now uh, is, uh, has a PhD in the Old Testament uh, in Psalms, and uh, has uh, been writing and training uh, very uh, significantly in the book of Jeremiah, and also uh, trains students in learning Hebrew, Uh, and I suspect I would have had an even better uh, understanding of it. In fact, I'd have an understanding of it um, if I'd had Jill as my teacher. She uses puppets. It's just, it's incredible uh, what I observe. Um, And Jill is not only uh, teaching students for this generation, but she's contributing to uh, and writing a commentary uh, on the book of Jeremiah which, of course, will then be a resource for ministers in generations to come. So um, we are really, really thrilled that she's able to join us this morning. So please join us on stage. Thanks, Jill. Now, Phil Swan, uh, known to many of you, but not all, um, is one of our uh, congregation members, but on and off. And the reason for that is not really on and off. I mean, you're still a member even if you're not here. But the reason for that is that he has been one of our uh, mission partners working with his family, his wife Gwyn and his three children uh, in Papua, translating the scriptures uh, into some local languages there. Uh, They are back in Melbourne but continuing that work and uh, we get the benefit of having them uh, in our midst but also the people of Papua uh, also get the benefit of them working remotely, assisting the teams, continuing the translation, doing consultant work and Phil is also uh, training new linguists uh, and uh, mission and ministry workers in languages. So thank you, Phil, for joining us. The Reverend Ben Clements should be known to many of you, but uh, not for as long as we have, uh, will enjoy in the future. We're going we're gonna to have many years with Ben, and, uh, but he's been our curate since February this year. Ben is uh, passionate about the Bible and has done some work himself on uh, the trustworthiness, particularly of the New Testament texts as they've been uh, copied and passed down and what it means to do some textual criticism on that. So Ben's going to share some of that passion with us this morning as well. He definitely needs a round of applause. Yeah, if you go in the middle. And this is Megan. <laughs> oh, thank you. This, I'll put it behind here. All right. Well, uh, we do have a couple of slides. I wanted to begin just by reminding us on this St. Philip's Day of our, and it's going to be hard for me to sit down and talk, I'm not sure if I can, Um, reminding us of our mission as a welcoming and growing multi-generational church with refreshing faith in Jesus Christ, 
We will be life-giving to the believer, surprising to the world, and strengthening to the weary and doubting. What lies behind these statements are some values. We don't often uh, get to look at those in depth, but we've got 12 values that show how we're going to do that. We're to be anchored in Jesus, spirit-led and empowered, expectant, worshipping, hospitable, generous, engaged, global, honest, deep-thinking, compassionate and transformed. That's a lot, but actually we're a rich and complex community. And it's great to have some values behind the words of our mission and vision that help us to know what sort of habits we need to cultivate. The spirit-led and empowered habit is something that uh, has been part of our DNA as a church for many years, but it's got some extra language with our, um, with our mission statement, and it's for us to be spirit-led and empowered as we build our lives and ministries on the Bible. So we are a congregation, we're a church that holds together the revelation of God in the scriptures, in the Bible, and expects that God's Holy Spirit will be at work in each of us, helping us to understand that, helping us to hear God both in the scriptures and in our prayers uh, and through other people's ministry to us, and that he will shape our lives on the Bible through his power. So I wanted to ask uh, our guests today uh, about this Bible because we really need to make sure that um, we're not just thinking, ah, well, it came to us in whatever amazing package it is. So, you know, I've got this one here. It's floppy, fake leather, couldn't afford the real. But, you know, it looks kind of serious. I've got the the message, but the original, right? And this has got my bad, uh, this is from, it's probably got Megan Curlis written in the front. Uh, and uh, there's just the New Testament before Eugene Peterson had got doing the rest. Um, I've got my Greek New Testament, which just sits on the shelf to make me look smart. And I've got my uh, New Revised Standard Version, which I got when I was ordained. And it's also got the apocryphal and deuterocanonical books in it. What? So it has to be said that most of us just accept that, okay, we've got this book, comes in all nice colours, can get a new one every year if I want, um, and uh, it's something that I'm supposed to base my life on. But I wanted to ask Ben, first of all, because, you know, you're young and motivated, um, <laughs> unlike the... <laughs> no. Um, you're young and motivated. No, just dial it back. Okay. Why is it important that we should say that we base our lives and ministries on the Bible? What is the Bible claiming? Why is it something we need to make sure we can trust? It's a good question. I am motivated. Um, well, see, so yeah, probably for two reasons. The first one's um, a much quicker one. Like, the thing is, the Bible is actually a pretty big deal. Uh, like, it is a book that consistently outsells every other book in history. I think there was one year where one of the Harry Potters sold slightly more copies <laughs> than the, the Bible, but then it was back to the Bible again the next year. Like it's, and they reckon that in the last 200 years, over 5 billion Bibles have been sold or distributed. Like, that is amazing. That works out to be about one Bible every 1.2 seconds. <laughs> 
So even the time that we've been worshiping today, that's heaps, <laughs> okay? And so because it's such a popular book in the world, we should certainly care about what it says and whether we can believe it. Uh, but second, I think perhaps more significantly for us, most of us here are Christians, I imagine, uh, the Bible also makes extraordinary claims, uh, more than any other book in history. And so, you know, it's more than just a source where we can learn about God, or maybe even like it's a set of kind of authorities for us to follow. It actually, it claims to be inspired by God. It claims to be God's word. I mean, after our, after our reading, um, Phil said, this is the word of the Lord. It's kind of an automatic thing, but this is the word of the Lord. Mm. This is God's word. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? And so when, I, when we say the Bible is inspired, uh, it simply just means that God is the, the ultimate author of the Bible. Yeah, inspired came from this sort of idea of in, in, inspirited, uh, which is where we get uh, inspired from. But so... On the one hand, that means the Bible didn't simply just fall out of the sky um, from, from heaven in those different uh, packages that, uh, that Megan <laughs> described and more. I mean, I've got my own little collection of different ones and I, my nice little, I've got a handle with a, with a pen holder inside. I was very excited for one of, of those. Uh, so it didn't actually fall out of the sky without any interve intervention from humans at all. Like people physically did write down the words that we have in our Bibles today. Uh, but on the other hand... The Bible isn't simply just a human writing, you know, written by people who maybe were inspired by the thought of God and how cool he is, and so they thought, well, I'm going to write some cool stuff down about him, you know, without any actual involvement with God either. So, so it's kind of, it's one of those both and things. So for many of our beliefs as Christians, and if you've been a Christian for long enough, you've probably come across these sort of tensions or paradoxes. You know, often we, we're we're not called to make a choice between like one pole or another pole or meet halfway in the middle. Often it's both poles at once. And that blows my mind. And I'm sure it should blow most of our minds. Like, for example, we believe that Jesus is 100% God and 100% human. I don't understand exactly how that works. I understand a bit of how it works. I've been to college. But even so, like, that, I can't quite get my head around that. It's not 50%, 50%. It's both. Mm. Uh, and so with our Bibles, we also believe that God himself was working through the human authors um, so that even though the words were physically written down by people and, and that involved their intellect, their, their personal style, their personality, like in different books of the Bible, they, they read differently, don't they? Like a psalm is very different from the law, which is very different from like one of Paul's letters. There's all these different styles, but yet... It's also God's very spirit breathed out. It's his very word to humanity. And so we could sometimes say that the Bible has dual authorship. Okay, it's not one or the other. It's actually, it's God and people working together. And the Bible doesn't actually give us precisely how that relationship works. Um, but we get, a couple, we get a couple of clues. And so the reading that we got from, uh, from 2 Peter expresses a bit of this relationship, where Peter says... We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place. In other words, it's, it's actually something that carries power and weight. Like, it's not just dead words, it's, there's power and authority here. Then he says, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. Like, it's not just a human written thing, 
Prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, it's God's Spirit working in people's hearts and actually um, working together to produce what we have today in our Bibles. And of course, the classic text as well is from 2 Timothy uh, 3, where it says that all Scripture is God-breathed, God-spirited. It's actually, it's that's what it is. It's God breathing out his word to us, and that is useful for our everyday life, for leading us to belief in Jesus, but also for knowing how to actually live a life that is um, worthy of that. And so the Bible, it's a, it's a big deal, because even though these words were physically written down by people, uh, at the same time, they're God's very spirit breathed out in a way that we can understand. It's his word to humanity. You know, when, when the Bible is read out, that is God speaking to you. Mm. It's God speaking to us. You know, and like I said, that's, we say it's the word of the Lord. It's God's word. Uh, and because um, God speaks out to us, it's not just lifeless words on a page. It's not just, you know, dead words that are just there for once, but now, you know, we don't have that anymore. Actually, like, even in Hebrews 4, it says God's word is alive and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Like, it actually, it, it's something that can penetrate us, and actually, it almost reads us more than we read it. There's a real power to that, mm-hmm. uh, which is why the Bible is so important today. Even though it is such an old book, God, through his word, still speaks very much clearly today. Mm-hmm. And so it does make a massive claim on our lives. And that's, so that's why we should care about whether it's trustworthy or true, because it's, it's an amazing book. Thank you. It is. Uh, but it's important that, especially in this day and age, uh, that we feel that the transmission of the scriptures has been uh, something that we can rely on. Um, I know that uh, if you think about Mormonism, for example... Uh, even though the, the name of Jesus is there, there's a great shadow cast on whether the Bible itself uh, has been translated accurately, whether it's been passed on, whether it's been corrupted. And I think that uh, outside of religions, that question mark is everywhere. So um, tell us, Jill, uh, originally, what languages was the Bible written in? Yep. Okay, so my part of the Bible is the Old Testament and the languages that are still there in our text is mostly Hebrew, but there's some Aramaic, which is, do you remember Abraham came from Ur of the Chaldees, which is over in Babylon, which is present-day Iraq, Mm -hmm. and then he went up to stay with the Kazani people in Haran. They spoke Aramaic there. And then he went down into Israel, which wasn't called Israel in those days, the, the land. And they spoke Canaanite languages. And Hebrew is quite like the Canaanite languages, but Aramaic's a really close relative. So you can kind of understand, if you can speak one, you can, you know, hum along to the other. Hmm. Mm. They're pretty ancient. So how can we be confident that what we have translated for us today is accurate, understandable? How does that work? Okay, that's a very long question, <laughs> like a complicated question. I'm give not us quite the, sure Give us the bit. top lines, the headlines. Okay, so, um, 
So that you've asked me like five questions in one. Okay. Love it. So um, the question is the overall question: what they wrote before, what we've got now, right? Mm. Okay. So um, the um, the I'll start with the original text. Just interrupt me if you want to go somewhere else. So the original text. Um, Hardly any of them, I would say, were written by one person in their bedroom writing. The really beautiful um, novel-type ones, like Esther and Ruth, they're, they're just like something you could write yourself. They're based on history, but somebody could perhaps have written them down. Whereas most of them look like they had a bit of a transmission history to the text that, you know, is part of the Old Testament. So, for example, Genesis, we call that part of the books of Moses, but... Genesis is written before, or the action takes place before Moses was born, right? Mm. So he can't have just like written from his own experience. He had to listen to someone to get that information. And Exodus, which is the book about Moses, starts with his birth, which again, most of us don't have much memory. I've been watching Ben's kids whizzing about. Um, they probably don't remember, they might remember each other's birth if they're the big kid, but the little kid, no, no memory, right? So his mother or someone told him that story. So there's a bit of a you know, like background thing. And then um, the fifth book of Moses um, ends with his death. It says, and Moses died. And most of us can't write the story of our death either. So um, the, the, actually the Torah doesn't claim to be written by Moses. It's about Moses. There's lots of Moses' words in there. So we've got to be careful when we think of authorship. Mm. It's not that, like, Paul wrote Paul's letters, probably, you know, that, yeah. that's someone else's question. But, you know... They contain people's information, Isaiah, Jeremiah, but whether they actually were the person with the pen. And certainly Jeremiah, he used Baruch, who's a um, scribe. So Jeremiah kind of recites and Baruch writes it down. There's one really fun place where a bad king throws the whole thing in the fire. So Jeremiah says, come on, Baruch, back to the back room. And he recites it again. So he's got it completely memorised, right? And Baruch's like... And then he says, and I'm going to add some more. And then, you know, so that was like at least in two stages. You know, there was the first bit that got burnt and then that was rewritten and then they added some stuff and then there's some stuff that happened after that. So it's not like somebody just sat in the back room, you know, And you didn't like have to go months. behind the scenes to find that information. That's just in the text That's of in the Bible. Yeah. So we've got to be careful to bring what we think, David wrote the Psalms, whatever, to what the Bible actually claims for itself. Yeah. The same with the Psalms. We call them the Psalms of David, but the Psalms themselves, some of them are of David, but some of them are by Levites, which is worship leaders like these guys, you know, and they made some songs and they're in there as well. So the Psalter doesn't claim itself mm. that David wrote the whole thing. It's just because he's the big figure that, you know, his name. So on Friday night, the youth group uh, were talking about what they want to study and they said to uh, Nick, oh, who wrote the book of Judges? And I just happened to be in there to, to pick up Phoebe and then they looked at me and said, who wrote the book of Judges? And I said, huh, I don't think we really know. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. There, there are a number of books that we... What we know is that the prophets actually were writers. So in the Bible itself, it tells us some of the sources... You will find more information on this in the book of the kings of Judah, mm. in the book of the kings of Israel, um, in, the, in the book of Gad or, I think, 
I can't remember now if Nathan has one, but prophets that are mentioned in the Bible, like in the books of Kings, they say and so and so was David's prophet, and there are books by these guys. Have we ever found them? Uh, we haven't got them, but like Samuel could be a book like that, that Samuel was like the person who was gathering the information and pulling it all together, but they had all these records and then they were pulled together by somebody you know, maybe mainly by Samuel or mainly by Jeremiah, but perhaps other people, like the death of Moses, you know, was put on by someone else. Maybe Joshua, maybe someone we don't know their name. Mm. So we have to be quite careful just not to be, like, very westernised about, you know, whoever it was, Dan Brown wrote, you know, <laughs> his thing. Know. He probably yeah. wrote it by himself. But these books are not... They, they don't claim to just be have somebody writing down with a borrow. Mm. Mm. Well, I did ask you about five questions... But I'm going to pause there um, because what we're assuming is it's uh, we we I don't read uh, Hebrew well. I can look it up in a dictionary, um, but you know maybe you can sort of read it. Um, some people can, um, uh, but most of us are reliant on our English translations of Hebrew and Aramaic, and then for the New Testament, um, Greek. Uh, it's not a given in every religious text that you're actually allowed to translate it from the original language uh, and still say that it's, that it's the word of God. So, Phil, I wanted to ask you, um, why do you think in your job and for us in reading our English translations that it's even permissible to say this is the word of God when it's translated from the original in inspired language? Yeah, you, you may have heard that um, Muslims only recite the Quran in Arabic because they believe that the, the Quran records the exact words that God revealed to their prophet Muhammad through the angel Gabriel. So those are the words of God. And if you, if you translate them, then they're no longer God's words. They, you've had human intervention and interpretation. And so... Uh, any translation of the Quran is not considered sacred or uh, authoritative. But for, for humans, as Ben was saying, we don't, we don't think of the Bible as God's, um, you know, word, as a word-for-word -word dictation. Um, but God's word, yeah, it's God's word. It's not God's words. Um, and uh, the Bible, uh, in those words records God's word or God's message to us. And so, um, so long as we, so we can translate it, and so long as a translation sticks to the original um, message and intent of the original authors and of obviously God being one of those authors, um, then, yeah, we can say that this is still God's word in whatever language it's translated. And so tell us what... Um what languages do you translate the Bible into, Phil? Uh, so I have been working with a couple of Papuan languages in Indonesia. Do you just do New Testament from Greek or do you do, um, like, how do you use the original languages in that? Um, how we do it is that, so we, Guinevere and I work with, two, with teams of Papuan translators and they will draft their translation from Indonesian mm. um, and then we will check their draft back against the Greek for the New Testament or the Hebrew for the Old Testament. 
Yep. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. So I wanted to ask Ben, if Phil is using um, a, a Greek New Testament to check this translation from Indonesian to Papuan Malay, um, how can Phil be sure that the text that he has now in 2022, even though it's in Greek, is what was written back in the day? Mm. It's a good question. Um, I think it kind of plays into this other idea that, um, I don't know if you've heard this view before, but that the, the Bible, our Bibles today are kind of a, a result of a giant game of pass it on. You know that game where you stand in the line and one person has a message and then you talk to the next person and then they tell it to the next person, next person, next person. And by the time you get to the end, it's basically unrecognisable, particularly if you've got a couple of cheeky people in the middle who've decided to change it. Um, I'm not going to confirm or deny whether I was one of those people. I think uh, we can be sure. Maybe. <laughs> uh, and so then the idea is that, okay, we've got our, our Bibles written in the original languages, but then over time, you know, um, it was copied, and then that copy was then copied, and then that copy was copied, copy, 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 copy. And, and as you go along, suddenly you end up with something that's unrecognisable from, from the original. Uh, and so it's, that's a pretty common view, I'd say. Uh, and the only trouble with that view is that it's wrong. <laughs> um, and so the thing is, we don't actually have the original uh, autographs, the original sources of uh, the New and the Old Testament, um, which, is, which is a shame. Although that said, we do have the next best thing, which is loads and loads of copies of them. Uh, and they, they're spread across like a, a couple of thousand, at least a thousand years, uh, and we can have lots of generations of these copies. Uh, and so these things, they were, they were written out and copied by hand. We didn't have uh, photocopiers and printing presses back then. Uh, and if you actually compare all these different copies together across these different centuries, we do actually find differences between them. I'm not going to kind of gloss over on that and say, oh, every single word is exactly the same. Actually, there are, there are differences. There are differences. Now, we might think then that finding differences across these things can actually make it pretty hard, maybe even impossible, to know what the original said. Because it's like, well, if we don't have the original to compare it with, well, then how do we even know which is the right one? Like, they're all saying different things. Uh, but you see, the reason why we have so many copies, like in, in Greek, we've got, I think, over 5,000 manuscripts that we've found. And then if you go into some of the other languages, like Latin and other, other ones, it's like, it blows out to like something like 25,000 yeah, right. um, quotations of scripture, all these different things. It's amazing. No other document in ancient history has anything near that much. But you see, the reason why we've got so many of these copies is it's not that it was, you know, we had the original led to the Romans and then, you know, that somebody decided to copy it and someone decided to copy that one. Actually, what happened was it's more like Paul sent the, the letter to the Romans, they received it, and then say, like, ten copies got made of that. Uh, and so then from those ten copies, another ten copies. So then suddenly there was a hundred in the next generation and it kept on growing exponentially like that. Um, we don't know exactly how many copies, but you get the idea. It was like it was just multiplication. Uh, and the thing is that we've actually found manuscripts from all these different generations of copies. So for these different kind of stages that they became, they multiplied. Mm. And so what we can do is this exponential growth actually enables us to accurately reconstruct uh, what, what the original would have looked like. If we have more time, I give a fun example of this, but um, maybe you can talk to me over lunch. And I can give an example of this in our everyday language. But basically, with these thousands of manuscripts, we can compare a particular piece of Greek writing of the New Testament from, say, the year 1000 to then the year like 300. And then we can look at that and we can see what 
what uh, changes were made, and by kind of looking at all these things, we can actually start to piece together what the original said with a high level of confidence in its accuracy. Because you see, there's, there's scholars who, like, this is the, their entire job is to do this. It's called textual criticism, uh, not, not to say we're criticising the text. It's a critique. It's in order to kind of get back to what the original said uh, through a whole bunch of processes. But basically, what they can do is they can look at all these things together and go, okay, these words are flipped around, or this, this thing's misspelled, or this, suddenly this whole section or sentence is added in these much later copies, but it's not there in the earlier ones. And so they can go, okay, well, clearly, because we've got other ones around that time, but we're not based on these original copies, and so they can go, okay, that's clearly not meant to be there. And so over time, through a great science and an art, they're actually able to really reconstruct what the original looked like. Uh, and so it's basically how, how scholars are able to reconstruct what the Bible was. And so even with differences between these copies, uh, with enough copies, which you've got, and, enough, and a little bit of common sense, which we have a lot of, there's a lot of really, really clever people who are working on this stuff, uh, we can actually reconstruct the original with a high level of confidence. Um, and what's really cool as well is that the, um, the Old Testament was also available in Greek at the time of Jesus. Uh, and so then we've got another source of things which we can actually compare the Hebrew and the Greek together uh, and, and just see it's an extra level of confidence in the Old Testament as well. And it might reassure you to know that 99% of all of these differences that people have found across these manuscripts, like it's all just silly little things, like someone spelt the word um, bread wrong or something, you know, and a couple of things, or, or they've changed the letter or the, the arrangement of the words, which in Greek and I presume in Hebrew, the, the order doesn't matter all that much. Uh, it has the same meaning. Um, so, like, it's just simple little things, and even copying errors, like, you know, you know from when you're writing something out from the board uh, back in school, and you, you might forget a line or you might forget a word, that sort of thing. But because we've got so many copies over all these generations, it's really easy to tell when it's like, oh, you've just missed the whole word. Like, that's not a big deal. And so most, pretty much every single um, discrepancy or difference in these uh, manuscripts are all that sort of thing. Um, and then there's like hardly any that actually are debated these days. Uh, and the, the important thing as well is that even all these discrepancies and things, none of them actually affect our core Christian beliefs in any way. Uh, so they're all just like, most of them all just like little random little bits of the Bible that have nothing to do with our core beliefs. And so... I want us to have great confidence that the original uh, um, Hebrew and the original Greek um, things that we use to base all of our translations on these days, they are very accurate. Uh, there's, people reckon it's like 99.8% pure, something like that. It's like we can have so much confidence that that is the case. So, One of the things helps. I love is that actually if you've got um, uh, a Bible with any little footnotes or any, um, it'll show you. It's not hiding uh, the fact that there might be a slightly different reading, uh, you'll find that in your Bibles um, at the bottom. And that's what it means if you go, some versions say, blah, 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 or uh, this story is not found in some of the most ancient manuscripts. They'll tell you, uh, because it's not hiding anything, it's not a power play, uh, it's really everybody is trying to get to the original text. Jill, is the Old Testament um, as, can you be as confident? Yeah, so this is a really good question. Um, the Greek situation is that it was a big literate society. It was like 
hundreds of years later than the Old Testament was written. So we've got millions of documents, right, and close to the time and, you know, these trees. In Hebrew, it's a bit of a different story. Um, the best manuscripts, now don't keep breathing and listening, the best manuscripts are medieval, 9th and 10th century after Jesus, right? We're talking about the Old Testament and we've got things that are like a, a thousand years after the best New Testament uh, documents. So people are like, oh, they probably were changed a lot, right? That's a, that's a terrifying experience. But the, there's a lot of really interesting information, which I won't tell you at all, but I'll tell you some highlights. So the 9th and 10th century documents we've got are actually complete... Um, they're codexes, they're not scrolls anymore, they're books. Uh, one is in the shrine of the book in Jerusalem. You, you can't see it, but you can see like copies because nobody's allowed to touch it or anything, uh, except scholars. It's like down underneath, but you can see like displays like this. And the uh, Leningrad Codex is in Leningrad, which has now gone back to being called St. Petersburg, right? Um, so that's in a museum there, and I can't remember if you can see it or not. But they're like complete complete copies, right, not just little bits and pieces. And they both have a long history of hundreds of years of people copying, like expert copyists. This is not just me in my bedroom hoping for the best, but I've been trained, this is my whole life, to accurately copy and other people check, and I'm known to be the best. I can't think of a, you know, it's like the best sound engineer in the world or the, you know, the person who can do the balance beam or something, you know, they're, they're like super, super, super expert. You, you'd be able to do this better than me, Phil. Anyway, so there's that long tradition. But before that, what about, you know, like from Moses to even Jesus' time, that's like a thousand years. It's not good. Um, but we have some interesting, um, like, little connections. So um, one of the things is the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is around the time of Jesus, and the Masoretic text, it's called, that's the one that was copied by the experts. They were called Masoretes. Um, the things we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls that are Hebrew, which is around the time of Jesus, so a, a thousand years before our Masoretic text, they matched up. You know, some of the, there are some different things in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but if you've got like Isaiah or the Psalms, the actual, the words in those Psalms that we've got, we haven't got them all, but we've got a lot, um, and Isaiah, it's the same. So we're like, nothing happened between Jesus mm. and the Masoretes. Mm. Um, another thing we recently found, not me, you know, some real people, was in En Gedi, which is down near the Dead Sea. It's, it's actually a, like a um, park with waterfalls and deer. It's, you know, David used to go there. I'm like, I've got to go to En Gedi. And I finally went there. And it's all these deers and trees and nothing like, you know, the Judean desert. Anyway, it's this fantastic place. And there was a synagogue there, which was destroyed probably around 600 AD. But they found in it, um, you know, Jewish people have like kind of a box called the Ark, a kind of a cupboard where they keep the sacred scrolls. And they found the Ark and these burnt up scrolls. This is like a few decades ago. And they couldn't do anything with it because burnt up scrolls, what do you do? But then with the magic of um, like CT scans and x-rays and everything, they've been able to read the scrolls. And they found this Leviticus one. It's just like, this is recent, like 2015. You can just Google it, you know, and Getty scroll it. It'll come up on Wikipedia. But um, they've been able to read it, and it's Leviticus. There's 35 either lines or pages. I've forgotten now. It must be lines. But they're the same as the Masoretic text. So that's like 300, probably 1st, 2nd, 3rd century, up to the 9th or 10th century and it's the same. So there are lots of other things I could say, but basically 
we don't have a lot of information, but the information we've got is all like very encouraging. Mm. Mm. And in the Leningrad thingy codex um, and the Jerusalem one, is it the same list of books that we have in our Old Testament today? Is it the same group or has it got extras? What's the deal? Yeah, so... I want to know. <laughs> so this is a good question. Uh, the Protestant Bible is based on um, this Hebrew tradition. I, I don't think they'd found Aleppo and stuff at, at that time. They were using other copies, but... Um, the Jews had a particular tradition, which is what we, we have here. These are the books. They're in a different order, but they're the same books. Um, but Catholics followed the Old Latin, which had some different books in it, and Greek Orthodox and other Greek speakers mm. have even different books again. They're mostly the ones that they've got that we don't have are mostly ones that were written later, like yeah. 4th century to 1st century before Jesus, like the three or 400 years before Jesus, and they're in Greek. So some of them had Hebrew originals, but we've only got that, or actually we've been finding some Hebrew originals, but they're not in, not in our Bible. So the Greek tradition, which is the Septuagint, um, kept a lot of these things. The Latins actually chucked them out but then put them back in and the Hebrew, because it's only Hebrew and Aramaic, they didn't have them. So what we've got is the Jewish Bible that Jesus would have been hearing in the, in the synagogue yeah. mm. and, and memorising, in my opinion, completely by heart. The <laughs> Word of God, would he have known the Bible? You'd hope so, yeah. That's very um, affirming, isn't it? It gives you confidence that the Old Testament that we have is the Old Testament that Jesus had. Yeah, and, yeah. and what Ben said, you know, we've got quote, 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 Jewish sources and, like, you don't get many New Testament quotes in the Jewish people except if they're doing, like, hate mail, but um, some, obviously, many, many Jewish people became Christians and, you know, some of it was good, but there were lots of fights, but the Old Testament was everybody's book. And so there's quotes in Josephus and, yeah. you know, all kinds of stuff. So we've got tons of quotes that show that what we've got now is what the first century people were writing, reading mm. and they were, like, copying bits out and, yeah. Jill mentioned um, Dan Brown, um, probably because you've been doing some research for this and he was the first author that's on your mind. I don't know if you remember the Da Vinci Code um, book, which... Uh, really drew on um, some uh, other scholarship at the time which was saying, well, uh, it's all very well to say that you've got these things that are passed on and, you know, um, that you're confident in the books uh, as you have them, but what about other books? Like, you know, weren't there other texts that the powerful people threw in the bin because they didn't want those competing voices to say something uh, alternate about Jesus, and so Dan Brown chooses things like Jesus was married. Um, there's actually nothing in any alternate uh, text that says that Jesus was married, but there's some stuff about Mary Magdalene. Um, and so what Jill also said was that uh, we have a lot of quotes of the Old Testament in some of these more uh, writings that are more contemporary to Jesus, even if we don't have a book. And they're called, that's what we call an artefact of the canon. A canon is we've made a decision on what is in and what is out. So we would call, we have a finished canon of 66 books, Old and New Testament. Uh, we've got artefacts which tell us how this was developed and which books were in and which books were out. And some of those are quotes in other people's works. 
downstairs I've got a ginormous library of uh, books that I've, you know, bought from Kurong and whatever, and I've read about, you know, 5% of them. Um, but they, uh, the Christians have been doing this work, writing about Jesus forever. Uh, as soon as he came on the scene, they started writing things down and writing commentaries and writing letters about it and uh, writing ways to understand the previous thing that they'd written. Uh, and so uh, we actually have a number of these extra books like Megan's Library that quote the New Testament and the Old Testament. And so even when we don't have a full copy of the New Testament, the Old Testament, we can see which books were being used and accepted by a wide range of Christians at that time. Um, and of course, we can see then uh, what uh, was early, what had already been written, uh, say if someone, Irene, uh, Irenaeus was writing to someone in uh, 170 AD, uh, then uh, he uh, is quoting Paul's letter to the Romans, and we go, oh wow, so this guy's quoting it already, just like we have uh, in the later manuscripts. Um, so let's have a think about this canon and whether there were books that were kicked out. Because Jill's already said, well, there are some that we don't have in our Protestant uh, Old Testament. And you might have heard there's something called the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas and the Gospel of Peter. And we don't have those. And they say more unusual things about Jesus they particularly um, cast. Uh, they particularly look at Jesus' humanity and Jesus' uh, deity, and they a lot of them can't deal with the idea that Jesus bodily died on the cross, that the Son of God died, um, because that just seems to be so unspiritual. And so they're very much about, well, there was, a, there was kind of a spirit, to, spirit Jesus that got out of the body and didn't have to die. Uh, and uh, a little bit like New Age today, really thinking about ourselves as spiritual beings and, and sort of um, rather than this really embodied around a table, God actually became flesh, uh, religion that we have in the New Testament. So I'm confident that those other manuscripts were both later and also not well used. So the artifacts that we have of both manuscripts and quotes say that we had a fourfold gospel from like really early, even like a hundred-ish AD. People were saying there's a gospel of John, there's a gospel of Mark, there's a gospel of Matthew, uh, and uh, and there's a Gospel of Luke. Um, so they, they were already dealing with these as packages. And then, of course, uh, it wasn't until the 300s, 4th century, that they finally said, these are all the books that are in, but they were recognising what had already been uh, used for centuries. But they just needed at that time to say, this is what's in and this is what's out. Uh, I'd love to talk to you more about that, but um, we don't have time today. So, um, Phil, you are involved in making this Word of God accessible to everyone, um, and you yourself have to read an English translation. Well, I suppose you could read an Indonesian translation or a 
Papua Malay translation, but um, what do you choose to read? What gives you most confidence in, as a translator? What English translation do you like? And why have we got so many? Can we be confident? <laughs> You've got 10 seconds, go. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, <clears throat> the one that I like, <clears throat> the one that I like the most, I have to say, is the New Living Translation. Um, because it's got, because it uses the most natural English, and English is the language that I like the best, or I know the best. Um, can I show that slide, or? Yeah, they're up there. So you just tell us which one it is, and Jerry will. Yeah, oh, so maybe the it. formal equivalence. Yep. Yeah. There it is. There we go. Okay, so the translations that we have. They kind of, they, they fit on this um, continuum, if you like, from what we call, what we'd say, formal equivalence. So translations that try to match the form of the language or a word-for-word -word translation down to functional equivalence. So the, not just the words themselves, but what function are they playing in the translation? Phil. Oh, thank you. Um, up the top there, I've put the Greek text of Romans 4.25 with just a gloss underneath it to show what the words are. If you look at the ESV translation, it, it's a, one of these word-for-word -word translations. It tries as closely as possible to stick to, you know, what, to make it look like Greek whilst still being English. Um, the NIV, you can see, has added in a little bit of implicit information. So we've got, he was delivered over to death. He was raised to life um, to make the meaning a bit clearer. The New Living Translation has made it, uh, has also added in the, those things, but it's used more natural English than the NIV. So he was handed over to die uh, because of our sins and he was raised to life to make us right with God, not using the, the word justification there, but the meaning of it. So you can see that kind of uh, movement from word for word to meaning for meaning or thought for thought. And then the message down the bottom I put in, it's uh, uh, more of a retelling or a paraphrase. And you can see that handed over to die, uh, death isn't exactly mentioned, nor is sin. Um, but it's sort of parceled up in that sacrifice word. Mm. So um, different translations. So all of those translations are, I would say, you know, they're conveying the, right, the same message. Um, the ESV is sort of more accurate if you want to talk about word for word. Um, uh, but at, the, at a bit of a loss of clarity... The NIV is still accurate. It's saying it's added extra words to make it clearer what is meant by um, delivered up. Um, and then the, yeah, the NLT is, is uh, prioritising clarity and sometimes sacrifices a degree of accuracy for the sake of naturalness. Um, so... Just with, with naturalness, you've also got to remember 
um, Paul wasn't actually speaking English. So, you know, I, I, I like to, when we're translating into Nimboran or a Papuan language, we're thinking, okay, how would Paul have said this if he was speaking modern Nimboran or if he was speaking modern English, what, how would he be saying it? And trying to make it, you know, clear and understandable. At the same time, you've got to remember, he was actually writing 2,000 years ago in a different language and culture. Um, and so we're not always going to be able to understand everything straight away. Um, so in, 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 in some ways, the message, it's refreshing and it's thought-provoking, but um, I, wouldn't, it, I wouldn't want that to be the only Bible that I read. So, yeah, they're all good. <laughs> Basically, the ma- those major translations, uh, I, they're all good. My personal favourite, the New Living, but the NIV, I think, is a really good uh, in the middle between the word-for-wordness, the, the form, and then the, the meaning or the function. In case you're visiting or you're not sure, we use the NIV to read in our services. So Phil Curls-Gibson uh, read from the NIV this morning. Well, we want to finish up so that we can uh, have some lunch together. Um, But uh, look, Phil, you're the one that's really um, making this accessible to other people. Um, Do you feel confident that uh, you are, uh, with the resources that you have, uh, that you are creating um, a scripture for people? Yeah, yes, I do. Oh, phew. Yeah, there is a lot of there is a lot of work has gone into the you know the the original manuscripts and being confident in that we've got yeah what pretty much what was originally written. There is a lot of work that has gone into translation theory and thinking about you know how 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 many extra words or how much can we make explicit that's already that's implicit without adding to the word of God. Like um, yeah, so yeah we we. Modern translation, I think, is is really good. Well, friends, part of your giving uh, goes to that sort of work, which is so... It's so great uh, that we're able to finance people being on the ground, like the Mulherans doing medical work and sharing the gospel, uh, and we're also able to finance um, ensuring that more and more people in the world actually have this powerful book that we can be so confident in, in their own language. Uh, we're, we're not going to sing our final song. We're going we're gonna to finish up. Uh, I'm going to pray for us. And uh, what we're going to do is just have uh, some uh, offering bowls towards the back. If you came prepared to give uh, financially uh, then in cash, then you can do that as you head out to lunch, that would be fantastic. But let me, uh, first of all, let's say thank you to our panellists. They have just raised the tiniest, tiniest little tip of the iceberg of the amount of scholarship that there is out there. And in some ways, that is a great thing to take away, that nobody's hiding anything. Everybody really wants to know. And the more digging that we do, the more we find that confirms the word of God that we have in the scriptures. So read it uh, and be confident. And if you want to ask more questions, they're here.
and we'll make sure that we feed Jill up so that she's here to answer any further questions of yours. So, 